Yale Podcast Network. Welcome to the Quadcast, a Yale Divinity School podcast series focusing on issues related to religion, culture, and politics. In this episode, YDS alum Emily Judd interviews Abdul Rahman Malik, an award-winning journalist and Yale Divinity School lecturer on Islamic studies. In the episode, he describes the Islamic holy month of Ramadan, observed by over one billion Muslims around the world. Ramadan is meant as a time where, you know, you kind of deny the body but, 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 but free the spirit. He discusses the secret history between Islam and coffee and how coffee was popularized by Muslims in Yemen who used coffee to stay awake for nightly prayers. The coffee fruit was, was originally chewed raw by, uh, by the mystics um, and the Sufi orders. And Malik also weighs in on the rising trend of Islamophobia and argues against the idea that violence is inherent Islam. For the vast majority of Muslims, their faith is a vital part of their desire for peace. You teach two courses at Yale Divinity School, the first being Foundations of Islam, Understanding Muslim Tradition, Practice, and Encounter, and the second being Islam at the Intersections, Readings in Race, Gender, Sexuality, and Liberation. What motivated you to teach Islam at a Christian divinity school. Well, first of all, uh, Emily, thank you so much for 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 having me today and for this for this conversation. I felt like having the privilege to design a course on introducing Islam to Christian seminarians essentially was an opportunity, really, for me to communicate and provide a space in which we could discuss the essence of Islam, to look at Islam in the modern world, but also to understand it from the inside out and to have a confessional Muslim teaching that not merely as a subject, but really as we do at YDS, as scripture, as something that is connected to the divine was a, was an incredible opportunity. And if I feel like students leave the class with an appreciation for Islamic faith, culture, uh, spirituality, and history, and this is all they ever learned learn about Islam, but they're going to go out into a multi-faith world. My hope is that they'll, they'll, they'll take some of that essential knowledge with them, which will give them the tools for cultural and religious literacy in, in an ever-changing and ever-diverse United States. I, I'm very happy to hear it because actually myself, I, was, uh, I came to the Divinity School, Yale Divinity School in 2016 with the desire to learn about my own religion, Christianity. And it wasn't until I believe 2017, I took the course uh, that was being taught at the Divinity School Christian Muslim Dialogue with the late Professor Laman Sana. My whole universe changed. I was dedicated now to Christian Muslim relations after this class. And that's actually what I still do in my work. Like you said, many people probably have never been exposed to Islam if they're coming from a Christian background. Um, you know, Muslims are only 1% of the population in the U.S., so I think it's very important work that you're doing. And I'm curious your thoughts. Why should Christians in particular learn about Islam? You know, I, I think writ large in the world today as, as, as faith communities, the encounter between Islam and Christianity, I think, amongst interreligious encounters is, is special. Um, it's it's special because the two faiths share so much. There's such affinity in our faith traditions. 
I believe, the approach of, of the Prophet Muhammad, who spoke about the affinity between Christian and Muslim, who spoke about defending the uh, the life, the property, uh, the religious institutions of, uh, of, of Christian people to the extent that in one narration he said that I am at war with anyone who violates the sanctity of the monastery or the church. The holy month of Ramadan, which is a, a holy month in Islam, is quickly approaching. And it's a time of fasting, prayer, and reflection for Muslims all over the world. It's over, I think there's over 1.2 billion Muslims in the world. Why is Ramadan so important to the Islamic faith? It's a month where, for the duration of, of, of 29 or 30 days, depending on the sighting of the moon, um, Muslims will engage in, in fasting. We won't eat or drink or engage in, in, in intimate relations from the rise of the sun to the setting of the sun. Ramadan is meant as a time where, you know, you kind of deny the body, but, 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 but free the spirit. Ramadan is a time of, 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 of charity. It's a time of giving. It's a time of service. Um, you know, while in the Muslim majority world in particular, time takes on a different feel. The days slow down, the nights become alive. Here in the United States and, and elsewhere where Muslims live, live as minorities, we continue to be part of the fabric of the societies which are ours, our communities, our neighborhoods, uh, engaging with our friends and neighbors um, who are not Muslim. And we layer on top of that this kind of sacred duty and responsibility. But ultimately, Emily, the, the, the wonder of Ramadan really is incredibly personal because, to be honest, if, if I felt hungry— I could go into I could go into my room, close the door, take out a Kit Kat, enjoy it, have a glass of water, wipe my face, look pious, and 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 walk out of my room and no one would know that I've broken my fast. There is an intimacy that fasting builds between you and the divine. You were part of a documentary that examined the relationship between coffee in Islam. So in addition to being a professor, you're also an award-winning journalist. So in this BBC documentary, you traveled to Turkey to explore the relationship between Islam and coffee. Can you tell us what is the secret history between Islam and coffee? The history of, of the cultivation and the brewing of coffee as a social beverage it entirely finds its beginnings in, in the Yemen. Um, coffee is... Um, uh, coffee originated in the Horn of Africa, particularly in modern-day Ethiopia, but it was first cultivated as um, as a fruit that was to be turned into a beverage in the Yemen. And it was in the Yemen that it gained social popularity because initially when the beans came over a period of several hundred years, plants were brought from, from Ethiopia over the Yemen across that narrow body of, body of water uh, between the Horn of Africa and the Arabian Peninsula. Um, the coffee fruit was was originally chewed raw by uh, by the mystics um, and the Sufi orders who who found that in in chewing the coffee fruit they would get incredible energy and a buzz to stay awake for their nightly devotion so they could stay up all night in worship and in prayer and and in the remembrance of God and eventually they started to boil and to make the um, the coffee fruit into a tea and 
and eventually um, uh, roasting the beans and 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 turning that into into a beverage. So there was a point in time, Emily, where all the coffee in the world, cultivated coffee in the world, came from the Yemen, and it was under the authority of the Ottoman Empire by then. And eventually, so to, what year uh, is this about? So we're looking at the, uh, the cultivation of coffee in the Yemen starts in the 1400s. Um, by the early 1500s, coffee has started to travel along caravan routes to places like Mecca, Damascus, uh, Cairo, and eventually Istanbul. By the end of the 1500s, we find the emergence of the first cafes in places like Damascus and eventually Constantinople, Istanbul, where where coffee really becomes a culture and an art form. And we see the invention of the coffee house um, is as... as um, uh, as as one of the scholars of uh, of the history of coffee notes that the, that the coffee house itself is entirely in character and in vision what he calls a Muslim institution, a place of hospitality and preparation. So the, the coffee house itself becomes this kind of institution outside of the usual places where people meet and interact. In, in, the, in, the, in, in the Turks used to call it the extension of one's living room. It was the one's living room outside the house where, where, where social discourse could take place. And eventually through uh, the machinations of colonial powers and the Dutch East India Company and, 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 and the French East India a company the the plant was eventually taken to um, colonial outposts like Reunion Island, um, to Ceylon, modern day Sri Lanka, and eventually to Java, and these now become places where where coffee, of course, we associate coffee with. So there's an incredibly rich history, and 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 so it's an obsession of mine. I could talk about it for hours uh, about coffee and its and, and its history and, and the power of it as a as a social as a social beverage. Men- Many, many research reports have found that Islamophobia is on the rise globally, um, including in the United States. I'm wondering, have you faced Islamophobia personally? And if so, how did you respond to it? And I think, oh, you know, for me, it's it's interesting because I think there's been many moments in my life where where I think I've faced directly been 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 confronted because I appeared Muslim. I I remember that I think one of my one one of those experiences that really shaped me was was when I was in university. Um, this is in the mid '90s, and it was shortly after a, a terrible period of violence in the in the in the Holy Land. And um, during my university years, I'd been very active in interfaith work, Christian, Jewish, Muslim work, um, also very active after the Oslo Accords and, and, and sort of supporting uh, the, the two-state solution in the, in the Holy Land. And so it was, it was an issue that was close to my heart. Um, and I remember I was in lineup at a Starbucks, and it was the day after a, a terrible um, attack in, 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 in Tel Aviv. Or, or many individuals had died in, in what would, we would term a suicide attack. And it was also on my heart and mind. And, and you know, as a, as a young person, maybe just 20 years old, deeply disturbed by that, also working through, you know, this phenomenon, which little did I know much later in life I would be very fully engaged with um, and, and in terms of looking at and understanding. And, and this gentleman turned around in line and looked at me. And I remember I, I, had, a, I had a bit of a, uh, I had much, much, <laughs> much most closely cropped beard in those days, but I was wearing what I was used to wear, my, my Afghan hat, which was a, sort of a signature hat of mine. And I was wearing a kafia. I was wearing my Palestinian scarf. 
And he turned around and said to me, uh, do you have a bomb in that bag? And he said it very loudly. Um, so the entire cafe heard and, and there was this kind of murmur and quietness. And I said, excuse me? He said, he said, do you have a bomb in that bag? Are you here to kill us? And I just remember my face going hot, you know, and it just, you know, it's a 20 year old, you know, wanting to, wanting to swear and shout and, and take him outside for a drag him, rock him, sock him. But I, I generally was not that kind of person. Um, but I think, I think, I think there's just like a shocking moment. And I think the shocking moment was two things. One, that someone would say that. And the second thing was the silence of, of all those people around, you know, and, and, and you think to yourself that, yeah, you know what, my whole life has sort of been defined uh, around this very dangerous Muslim other. And of course, that grew after 9-11. And, you know, I, I uh, Emily, you know, since the, since the mid 90s, I was, um, I was really engaged in the work of sort of, you know, community work, but also the work of sort of revising traditional Islamic pedagogy and education and connecting ourselves, particularly to the spiritual tradition. So groups like Al-Qaeda and, and, and you know, individuals like bin Laden were anathema to my Islam. But I think I, I myself realized, uh, you know, in, in, in university and beyond that, you know, religion can be weaponized in so many ways, and it it can it can be a force of manifest good, and it can be weaponized for harm and for for violence. So I think I had to recognize at at a at a very early point that you know there were those who wanted to weaponize Islam just as people want to weaponize other faith traditions for for violence and. Uh, to do harm, and and I think nine eleven was that kind of moment for us, you know, where where these individuals, I could say that they're not Muslim, but that would really be, I, I think that would be unfair almost. These people called themselves Muslim. Exactly. They said, I. They said, yeah, I've heard, yeah. Um, you know, certain Muslim leaders say when they are asked is this extremist truly Muslim or, you know, and they, uh, some of them will say, who am I to judge that? You know, I'm not the end all be all of who is a Muslim and who is not a Muslim, but you can say, and many, many, many Muslim leaders have said, but it's not covered enough in the media condemning acts that are, don't represent Islam. And and that was clear to me, you know, from the very beginning, that that, that not only the condemnation, but but later on, you know, uh, people like Professor Kurtzman and his book, The Missing Martyrs, uh, spoke about like if if a violence like this is so endemic to Islam, why aren't there more suicide bombers, right? Why aren't there more people martyring themselves for Islam? The truth is, and and you know, the the, the Gallup research that was led by Dalia Mugahed and and other researchers, you know, in the er- earlier two thousands you know, confirm this, Islam, Muslimness, Muslim values, ethics, morals, have scaffolded Muslim responses to global injustice. For the vast majority of Muslims, their faith is a vital part of their desire for peace. You're the director of the Muslim Leadership Lab, which is an innovative project being incubated at the Dwight Hall Center of Social Justice at Yale 
The goal of this lab is to cultivate a new generation of American Muslim leaders who are serving the common good at Yale and, and beyond. How does the lab go about achieving that goal? You know, the lab has just, just been such a, a wonderful kind of generative space. No two years have been the same as we continue to try new ways of doing things. That's why we call it a lab. Um, this year, we're, we're getting ready to start at the end of this month. We're going to run through Ramadan. We felt that that was important, Ramadan being a time of, of sort of um, spiritual training. Um, the lab essentially gives... a. a is intended to allow students a space to gain the skills, confidence, and context to be proudly Muslim and to be proudly engaged in, fully in the societies and the communities, the neighborhoods, and the context that they live in. Our goal with the lab isn't to create American Muslim leaders who serve American Muslim interests. That would be far too narrow. Our goal in the lab is to cultivate and to give vision to these bright, intelligent, um, in you know, uh, I would say. Um, incredibly experienced, many of them, students, to have the confidence to be Muslim in whatever they do, and to know that serving the common good means serving their communities and, and, and serving God. And all of them are going to find different ways of, of, of doing that. Um, you know, the time is over, I think, in religious communities for parochial leadership, um, for for narrow-minded leadership. I don't—I I just— I, it is a time of convergence. It is a time of being present in in society, of being faithful, of living your your ethics, of joining hands with others. Because the fault lines are deep, the crisis is real, and we've experienced that in these pandemic days um, in ways that we never we never thought uh, never thought we would. So this year, for example, um, the, we're going to be organizing around a series of master classes where. We're, we're highlighting particularly Muslim uh, women of color who are at the front lines of community organizing, of politics, of policy work, um, and and encouraging our students to almost engage in a fishbowl style with them, you know, to, to have these opportunities for these grassroots frontline leaders who are working in, in all walks of life to be able to share from the worlds of, of journalism, politics, um, policy, uh, community organizing, arts and culture, to be able to talk about what does leadership look like as a self-identifying Muslim within the space that they're in, and to give an opportunity for students to deeply engage with the process by which the skills of that leadership were were have been have been built. Uh, it's incredibly gratifying for me. Um, and, and I can I hope, imagine, and I, hope, and I hope useful for 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 those who've participated. It's amazing, you know, your experience at Yale is training both Christian young leaders and then also Muslim young leaders. So your work is in itself serving, you know, all people. So that's amazing. I, I appreciate that, Emily. And I just want to thank you so much for, for giving us time today to talk about Islam, uh, many different topics, Islamophobia, Islam and coffee, um, Ramadan. So thank you so much for all of your insights. No, I really, I really appreciate it, Emily. Uh, YDS has become for me a, a really, a really special space, and I would say a sacred space. Um, there's a lot of amazing things that happen uh, in the quad, 
and around the around the around the quad and and I know it's students like yourself who who, who make that happen so shout out to to all of you who give life and spirit to this to this place the faculty do a great job but but it's I think it's the students of this place who really who really make it what it is